This week at Hope. We want the police or the courts or someone in authority to say something, to say that was wrong and it will be punished. Now that doesn't fix everything because no matter how much justice is done on earth, it's never complete because it can't replace that which is lost. But the one thing that we never say on this earth is that justice doesn't matter at all. There's no reason that we should enter into the courtroom or go to trial. It doesn't matter, let's just forget about it. No matter what the evil was done, let's move on. Nobody says that. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as our teacher speaks to us from God's holy word. If you have been following the, um, the sporting news at all, probably the main thing that you would have seen across the newswire this week was the hiring by the University of Colorado, Deion Sanders, coming from Jackson State, where he had a 27-5 and record in three seasons, and now is coming to Colorado, who has only uh, had one winning season in the past 17 years. So when he came and he met with the students on Monday, the athletes, he gave them quite a challenge. He reminded them that he had one more game to play with Jackson State as they were going to the Celebration Bowl in Atlanta on December 17th. So he was flying back to Mississippi to get his team ready, but after that, he's, he's coming to Colorado. And the speech I'm gonna to read to you will let you know that they need to get ready for the arrival of prime time. He said, there's a spirit around this team and you have become complacent that this is going to stop. I still have unfinished business to do in Jackson State. We got to go win this championship and we're going to do that. But shortly thereafter, I want you to know I'm coming. And this is real. I'm flat out coming. I'm coming to restore, replace, re-energize. I'm coming. I'm coming to work and not to play. I'm coming. It's going to be a different place, a different feel, a different work ethic, a different attitude, a different energy, a different want, a different hunger. I'm coming. You know I ain't playing because I got the credentials to back it up. I'm coming. Ain't going to be any more mediocrity when I get here. Everything's going to change, so y'all get ready because I'm coming. Lisa and I watched that speech, the whole thing's 14 minutes. And when it was over, she looked at me and she said, how do you think those boys felt in that assembly room? I said, well, it depends. If they want to play football at that level, it excited them. If they want to mess around, it scared them. Depends on their relationship to their seriousness of football. Without question, the message of Jesus Christ in Revelation 14 is, I'm coming. To some people, it is glorious news. To other people, it is terrifying news. But it all depends on one's relationship to what Jesus has to offer. 2,000 years ago, an angel came to a carpenter named Joseph it told him that his wife Mary had been visited by the Holy Spirit, was made pregnant by the Spirit of God. And he gave her some instructions, he gave him some instructions and comfort about what to do next. We read that in Matthew chapter 1, 20. 
Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Somebody asked me this week that out of all of the verses that tell the story of the birth of Christ in Matthew 1, Luke 1, Luke 2, what's my favorite? And I said, well, I think Matthew 121, name him Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. And that's what God's been doing for the past 21 centuries in the world. Those people living in addiction and rebellion and guilt He saved them from their sin. And if you haven't noticed that, you've not been paying attention. Because from the first century until now, God has offered forgiveness to those who are selfish and mean and perverse. He came in the world to say to the most rebellious and least deserving person, I'm willing to forgive you. Come to me. I'm willing to cleanse you. Come to me. No matter what you've done, come to me and I'll give my kingdom to you. I'll remove your guilt and replace it with my life. And as, as I said, if, you've not, if you're not aware that this is what's, what he's been doing for 21 centuries, you hadn't been paying attention. Because for those 2,000 years, flawed, forgiven, faulty people called Christians have been gathering week after week in a growing church around the world to receive new mercy every song and every sermon and every prayer from the Lord. Grace and mercy is what Jesus offers for all who will come to him. But to those who refuse to come to him, to those who belittle his glory, who hate his values, who deny his supremacy, suppress his truth, and oppose his kingdom, to those people, Jesus says, I'm coming. With the fiercest of wrath, I'm coming. Jesus Christ is the king of creation and history who does have all the credentials. And to all the world, he says, my glory will fill the earth, I'm coming. Every knee will bow to me, I'm coming. Every tongue will confess my supremacy. I'm coming. And to every single person who rebels against my lordship and refuses my salvation, I'll judge him with everlasting judgment. I'm coming. That's the message of Revelation 14. The final three verses we'll look at today, our final look at Revelation before the break and the holidays. If you haven't been here for Revelation chapter 14, John is looking at the end of history And he's looking at an angel that announces that Jesus Christ is to come to the world for his second coming and the days of grace and mercy are over. Revelation 14, 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city 
and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. We'll talk about that number in just a minute. As we said last week, the end of Revelation 14, it concludes with two pictures of God's judgment. One involves the harvesting of wheat that is mixed up with weeds, where the weeds are gathered and burned. Here, the second harvest, or the second picture of the judgment, is the harvest of grapes. Both the wheat and the grapes are not talking about wheat and grapes, they're talking about people. Because as you can see here, when the grapes are squished, juice does not come out, but blood comes out. And it's significant bloodshed in Revelation 14. It says a distance of 1,600 stadia, which would be, using the terms of ancient antiquity, would be about 180 miles. As high as the horse's bridle, so a battlefield 180 miles long, bloodshed five feet deep. Now, this is talking about the return of Christ. There are three giant pictures of Jesus in the book of Revelation. We saw one in chapter one where he was described in all of his glory. And then in chapter 19, it's a second description of Christ. It includes everything that we saw in chapter one, except in chapter 19, it includes this section on his robes being bloody. And it relates to chapter 14 is why I would bring it up. Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So when you read about the return of Christ in Revelation 19 and the blood, his blood-soaked robe, it's not his own blood on the robe. It is the blood of his enemies. You say, well, how would you know that? Well, as always, other parts of the scripture help us. And in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we have a picture also of the end times. The final seven chapters of Isaiah are a little miniature version of Revelation talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And in chapter 63, there's a reference to everything we've been talking about today. Who is this coming from Edom? That would be those who oppose God. With his garment stained crimson, who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? So Isaiah is a prophet. He gets this prophecy of the end of times, and he's confused about all that he sees, just as we are whenever we study Revelation. So he's asking questions. Who is this that's coming? And God answers. It is I, proclaiming victory and mighty to save. Then Isaiah says, well, I have another question for you. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? And so he asked God, when you come back, 
why does it look like you are one who works with uh, vines and all the grapes have been gathered into a vat and you are squishing them with your bare feet and the grape juice has covered all your clothes? Why do you look like that? Fair question. God answers. I trampled them, speaking of the nations, I trampled them in my anger, trod them down in my wrath, their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all of my clothing. Now, some of you might be asking on a day like today a couple questions. The first question that I imagine that you'd be asking is, Pastor, do you know that these passages are difficult to hear? And that answer is an emphatic, absolutely. They're difficult for me to read. They're difficult for me to teach. They're difficult for you to hear. These passages would not be easy to read for any sane person. They would make all of us uncomfortable. I've been pastoring or I've been teaching the Bible in some form of ministry for almost 40 years, I have been in so many settings where I've asked people, what is your favorite Bible verse? And nobody has ever said, oh, my favorite verse is that one in Revelation 14 about the bloodshed. Nobody picks that verse as their favorite. I've never heard a song written about it. I've never seen an artist paint a depiction of it because it's hard. It's, it's hard for our capacity to bear it's frightening territory in Revelation 14 because it's just as frightening as Hebrews 10 where the Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a lot of passages in the Bible like that. And I find them all hard to teach on. But because they are hard to teach on, does not give me the option to not teach on them. I am a man who says, I believe that all of the Bible is true. And you say, well, I'm glad our pastor believes that. Well, the only way I prove that to you is to teach on all the Bible. If I don't teach all of it, it means I don't trust all of it. I trust that it's inspired in spots and I'm inspired to pick out the spots. There are many in that camp. So it's not easy. Raises a second question, and thank you for submitting these. <laughs> Pastor, why would you preach this at Christmas? And the answer is this, because I think we all need to grow in our understanding of who Jesus really is and why he was really born. Joseph Moore, who wrote Silent Night, Holy Night, was the first one that said it in a song, and I love that, when he said, Jesus is Lord. Last line. Jesus is, well, I got my clicker. Good. Jesus is, is Lord at his birth. I mean, all of us just Google over our, gaga over our children. We don't Google them. We gaga over children. They're beautiful and they smell good and sometimes, and all of that. <laughs> but the one thing we don't ever say is, my child at his, at his birth, I can't get rid of that. Oh, there it is. My child is God. You might treat them like that, 
But you don't ever say my child is God, but the child of Joseph and Mary is the king of heaven and earth. That's why I think specifically God had us in this Revelation series during Christmas so we could remember he's not just a little baby wrapped in cloths as sometimes we sort of tend to leave him there. I have a nativity that I, nativity scene I particularly like in, in our house. We have lots of them. Like probably you do, the older you get, you just go to another store. I want that one too. We have them in several rooms, but I like this one because this was mom and dad's. And I remember all of my Christmases growing up in that house, how, how, how great it was to have a mom and dad like that. It's just, I put it out. I say, I love you, mom. I love you, dad. So a couple of weeks ago, Lisa said, can you get everything down out of the attic? All the Christmas ornaments, I got everything down and we got this out. So I, I, got, I unwrapped baby Jesus from the tissue paper and placed him in there. And in a few weeks when Christmas is over, I will wrap Jesus back up and put him in the attic until I want him to come down again next year. And maybe that's why God has us in Revelation this Christmas season to remind us that he's not a baby, that we move around. And we move anywhere we want so that we can live anyhow we want. Nobody moves the baby of Revelation 14. So I preach on Revelation at Christmas to remind ourselves of who Jesus actually is and not who I think I want him to be. He's not the eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus that Ricky Bobby loved to pray to. (laughs) Or the ninja who's fighting the samurai with a sword that Ricky Bobby's children liked. He's not a Jesus like his partner, Cal liked, who wears a tuxedo t-shirt and parties at Leonard Skinner concerts. He is the Jesus of Bethlehem and he is the Jesus of Revelation 14. That's Jesus. So I also preach on Revelation so that you'll know that that I, I would, with you, grow in gratitude of why he came. He came to shed his blood on a cross so that my blood would not be shed in judgment so that I wouldn't be part and that you wouldn't be part of Revelation 14. Or to say it very concisely, Jesus was born to save us from his own wrath. We'll say more about that in a minute, but just hear it again. He did not come to save us from wrath. He came to save us from his own wrath. That's the gospel. That's euangelion. That's good news. So now that we know how good the good news is, let me tell you exactly why the bad news is so bad. And again, we turn to the Old Testament in order to answer that. We saw in Revelation 14 that the blood of the battlefield at the end of history, when Christ comes back in wrath, is 180 miles long and five feet deep in blood. Why so much bloodshed? The Old Testament begins to answer that in Joel chapter 3. If you don't know the book of Joel, it's one of the minor prophets 
When we say minor, we just mean minotaur. It's like the book of Isaiah condensed. He gets to his point in a hurry. So what your Joel 3 is the same as Isaiah 63, just quick. But he explains why the blood is so deep in Revelation 14. Joel 3, God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. There I'll put them on trial for what they have done to my people Israel. They traded boys for prostitutes and they sold girls for wine to drink. We're going to look at a minute at a little bit more reasons why the judgment of God is so severe But this will be where we start. The judgment of God will come upon the world for what the world has done to children. The one thing that Hollywood elites, government officials, and corporate leaders such as those who own the American Girl Doll Company have as a similar ambition is to destroy the structure and stability of the family. And they do that by destroying children. If you want to summarize why we live in such an upside down world, and I think everybody gets that, why now there is this new onslaught against children, it's because it's a new wave of satanic strategy to destroy the structure and the stability of the family as God intended it. After God created all this, the stars and the mountains and the trees and the hawks, the first thing he did was create the family. And this is the thing that Satan has been seeking to destroy ever since because if you destroy the family, you can destroy a society. So when you look at this verse in Joel 3, you understand that a powerful explanation for God's fury over the nations is what the nations have done to children. But this is only one explanation for his justice. The other explanation is what the world has done to the people of God themselves, to those who worship the Lord as creator and Messiah and Savior. Referred to as Israel in the Old Testament, we call it in the New Testament the church, which is a completed Israel. It's Jews and Gentiles who all profess that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the King of the world. When you look at the harshness of God's judgment and revelation against the nations, it's because of how the world has treated the church. We saw that early in the book in Revelation chapter 6. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our what? Blood. So why is the blood so deep and so wide and so long in Revelation 14? Because it matches the amount of blood that has been shed by the world against the church over the past 21 centuries. 
These people in Revelation 6 are crying out for justice. They had been faithful to God to go preach in all of the world, to tell the world that God is the creator. He is worthy to obey, to be obeyed. His way is best, and he is holy and loving and forgiving, and that he has sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die on a cross so that we could live in the city of God in heaven forever. And the more the church preached this to the world, the world killed Christians one after another over 21 centuries. They did not want Christ to be king of their lives. So these people in Revelation 6 are longing for justice because they love a God who loves justice. Anyone who's made in the image of God knows the value of justice. A few nights ago, I made a public profession that I am getting older. My wife and I uh, were invited by a couple in this church to go hear Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant sing a bunch of Christmas songs at the Peace Center in Greenville. And I walked in there and I looked around and there was just a bunch of old people. <laughs> All of them, like me, had grown up with 40 years ago listening to these guys sing these songs. I felt like I was at a geriatrics convention. <laughs> and I was their age. There were a lot of great songs that night. Amy sang a song written... To, David Foster actually wrote for her in 1990 called My Grown-Up Christmas List. It was a good song for her. I love the song. It's just a few lyrics from it. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list. No more lives torn apart, the wars would never start, and everyone would have a friend, and right would always win. That entire song is a cry for justice. That's why people love it. When Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, she burst soon. She burst into song. A series of verses that she snatched from the Old Testament because she knew the word of God so well. And she put them all together in a song. We call it the Magnificat. And then in the middle of the Magnificat is a cry for justice. This is how Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is what she said about his son, about her son that was coming. Luke 152, he, Jesus, has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Mary said, I don't know when my son is going to do it, but he will do it. He will bring down wicked rulers. She said that. Because you know who she knew she was? She didn't have a shot of changing Rome. She was poor, not politically powerful. She was unknown. Rome was going to be Rome. 
oppress the weak, steal from the poor. And she says, one day God will bring down Rome and raise up the weak who loved her son, Jesus. She, like all of us, was longing for justice. You know, we hear about injustice almost every day, but at least every week in our reading or news or whatever. And I was really going to share a few current examples to you, but I backed off on that because I said, you hear that enough. And we really don't have the capacity to hear too much of the wickedness of the world. No human is capable of hearing and bearing it all. So let me just say that I know that there are people in this church, you've been victims of injustice. And I am grateful for every person and organization that seeks to make this world a little bit more right by bringing down, when possible, some wrong. You know, every time that we, we know where evil has overpowered the weak, where injustice has occurred, two things happen. When we read about it, and I'm thinking of things in my head I just read within the past two weeks, just so heavy. When I read that story, first two things, you experience grief because of the pain that, that evil did. And then the second emotion is this welling up, this longing for justice. Please may that evil thing be stopped. We want the police or the courts or someone in authority to say something, to say that was wrong and it will be punished. Now that doesn't fix everything because no matter how much justice is done on earth, it's never complete because it can't replace that which is lost. Justice is good, but it's incomplete on this side of heaven. But the one thing that we never say on this earth is that Justice doesn't matter at all. There's no reason that we should enter into the courtroom or go to trial. It doesn't matter. Let's just forget about it. Forgive. No matter what the evil was done, let's move on. Nobody says that. So we... But when we move from an earthly courtroom to a heavenly courtroom, we suddenly change our mind and we point to God and say to him, you should forgive everybody of everything and you should forget about it all. On the earth, we say, no, no, no. We should not forget about injustice. It should be treated justly. But when we think about God's courtroom, we say, yeah, you should forget about everything I've done. And forgive everything wrong I've done. So it sounds good to just point the finger at God and say, you should forgive everything and snap your fingers and forget about all that's occurred. It sounds good until you think and ask questions like, should God forget about what Nero, Genghis Khan, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, and Idi Amin did to millions of people that they imprisoned, tortured, and 
murdered. Should God just forget about it? You said, no. Nope, nope, nope. I changed my mind. Those people should get it. Justice. But everybody else who's far less evil than them, yeah, God should forget the rest. He can forget, he should. Now I said, well, what about the investor who stole all of a widow's money and she lost her house because of that, couldn't buy medicine and enough food and she died homeless, cold, diseased on the streets. Forget about that. Oh, no, 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 no. No, he should get it too. That's right, yeah, no, he's justice. But, but what I'm trying to say, Richard, is but not for somebody like me, because I'm not in those categories. I go to the factory every day and work hard and bring home a check and buy things for my wife and my, or my husband, my children. So for me, yes, God should forget the things I have done wrong against him. Yeah, he should forget. You know, the interesting thing about how we evaluate the goodness of our lives is we tend to only really remember the good things that we do. And then we take credit for them. There's a lot of good things that occur on this earth and theologians call that common grace. That God simply knows that the earth is going to go a lot better if he can inspire a lot of people to do a lot of good things, do, make a lot of inventions and build a lot of good factories and invent a lot of medicines. And so God inspires a lot of people to do a lot of good things and he restrains us all from being as bad as we could be. That's called common grace and he gives it to everybody. And yet we take credit for it and say, because common grace exists, I am good. But the truth is that God knows far more about our heart than we've ever stopped to consider and that God is far more holy than we've ever stopped to consider. And it is before this holy God that I've lived my entire life. So when let's say I say to God, I am a loving person, I get in. God would say, Jesus would ask just one question. Okay, I left the instructions. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have you done that? Well, I will tell you, you speak for yourself, but I'm going to tell you this. I have devoted only one millionth of the energy toward others that I have toward myself in this lifetime. I love me a lot more than my neighbor. Not even close. If that's the definition of love, I'm not that loving. And then I've lived my whole life before a holy God who's seen everything I've done, let's say from age 12. We'll just say a little did itty bitty stuff before 12. But age 12 is when I... Just that God has seen everything in my life from age 12 on. He's heard every conversation. He's seen every lustful thought in my head. He has seen every bitterness in my heart that I don't have what others have. He's seen every selfishness in my heart that I chose to keep what I made instead of give. He has seen me envy. 
He's seen pride in my heart for saying that I am responsible for everything I've gotten. He has seen me when I knew that I should witness for the Lord, but I was scared because I didn't want to be rejected and I, therefore I kept silent about Jesus. He's seen all of it. So how could I claim that I am good? If you want to know how the world really looks to good and are we really good, is the world really good? Then let me just give you this example that I got from Kevin DeYoung up in Charlotte. It's a very good example. So let's say that you are going to get some cans of Play-Doh and make a Play-Doh world. And I don't want to be bragging it. I did this last night. My, my first sculpture. So you make a little Play-Doh guy and you give him Play-Doh eyes, Play-Doh mouth, Play-Doh arms, Play-Doh legs. And, but after you get all the Play-Doh world made, you decide to do something that's never been done. You give them Play-Doh brains and Play-Doh hearts and Play-Doh lungs and you breathe your life into them. And all of a sudden they're living beings and they're able to accomplish great things at work and great things in the community. And they do many marvelous things. But Eventually, they start hurting each other, and then they do things with their Play-Doh bodies that you never intended their bodies to do. And so you confront them, and you gather all the Play-Doh people together, and you tell them that this is not the way I wanted you to behave toward one another, and this is not what I wanted you to do with your bodies And could I remind you that since I have made you, that you never have once returned to me to say thank you for making me? You could at least have gathered once a week to gather with other Plato people and to sing praises to me for all of my goodness to you. And really, the only time you ever talk to me is when one of your Plato arms falls off and you ask me to reattach it. <laughs> Or you run out of Plato money and ask for more. And so then they, after you confront them, they respond to you. Your little Plato world looks back at you and says, we owe you nothing. We made ourselves. And we will live however we choose. We will do what we want with our Plato bodies. We hate your rules. In fact, we went to college and read books that you don't even exist. And so we will live as if you don't exist. And that's the picture of the world. Created by God, blessed by God, yet they're hostile to God. Never would consider gathering in a church to praise the Lord for giving them everything they'll ever have. So if you want to know why the judgment of God is so severe in Revelation, it's because even though we look good on the outside, on the inside, we as Plato people are screaming to God, we owe you nothing. And we can live how we want So that brings us to the point of asking, is there any hope for such a rebel, for such a rebellious world? Is there any hope for me? Because I know that rebellion has been in my heart many times. And the answer is yes, there's hope because of Christmas. Because the baby in the manger was so much more than a baby in a manger. The child of Mary and Joseph was a king of heaven and earth. But he came to live a life to atone for how we've lived as rebellious Plato people. This is the way John describes Christmas. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. So He's making everything. But then the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So everything changed in verse 14. Now the one who made everything, God Himself crafted and placed in Mary's womb. Little Plato Jesus. So little Plato Jesus grew up to be a man, to teach the world about the truth of God. He amazed and stunned the world with miracles. And then when he announced to the world that he was the Savior and they needed to repent of their sin and come to him, they nailed the baby to a cross. They nailed the man to Calvary's cross. And they killed him. Because they said, we don't want you to be king. And in the providence and mystery and mercy of God, this was his plan to send all of the power of the word of God into a helpless, vulnerable child who was able to die on a cross. I'll conclude with this reading from Isaiah about how vulnerable that boy was. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our, our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. This verse doesn't say that God came to die for the bad people. And there are some bad people. No, all of us is who he came to die for. God laid all of our sin on Jesus. All of us needed him to come. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Little Jesus, Mary's child, is the one that God crushed. God crushed him. Think about this, Isaiah 53, Revelation 14. The enemies of God will be crushed, and I would have been there. I know my heart. I know what I've done. I should be crushed. But I will not be crushed, because Isaiah 53, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, became a man, and God crushed that man so that I would not be crushed in the final judgment. And that is true for everyone who hears these words today. You can either be crushed by the wrath of Christ in Revelation 14, or you can believe that he already came to be crushed by God for everything that you have ever done, said, or thought. And then Isaiah concludes this encouraging passage by reminding us of the hope of a relationship with Jesus today because he's no longer crushed. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, after he's suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. How beautiful is that in one verse? You see the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this resurrected Christ says, come to me. Receive my forgiveness and proclaim me to be Lord of your life and I'll not crush you on the day of judgment. What an offer, what a God, what a Savior, what a King, what a Messiah, what a child. 
to summarize Christmas, why did Jesus come? To save us from his own wrath. The child God crafted in Mary was the Savior God crushed at Calvary. The guilt of others fell on him, the blood he shed atoned for sin. Raised from death, a reigning king coming soon to judge all things. Flee to Christ, be spared from wrath. There's safety on no other path. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.